Steve Cook tells us about the real origin of where 1% came from in the world of outlaw motorcycle gangs. You have a kind of a riot kickoff, if you will. And let's keep it into context. By 1940s standards, maybe a riot. By Ferguson or Minneapolis standards, probably not a riot. But what ends up happening is, is you've, you know, get a lot of California uh, Highway Patrol called in. You get more bikers arrested, and you get the whole thing kind of quelled. But when it's all said and done, uh, the AMA, at least somebody from the AMA, says, hey, 99% of the bikers in attendance were law-abiding citizens. 1% were outlaws. 1% caused all the problems. And from that, you have these groups, uh, specifically the Hells Angels, that take that as a, a badge of honor, you know, that they... Uh, evolve shortly after Hollister, and actually uh, one of the members of the Pobob is one of the, the founding members of the Angels. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Everybody, welcome back to Game of Crimes. I am the ultimate, most interesting host on the internet, Morgan Wright, here with a semi-interesting, almost famous co-host. Excuse me while I throw up. Steve Murphy here. You can call me Murph. Yeah, well, speaking of that, Murph, I'm telling you, before we get into this, uh, people waited for it. We got so many great comments about Connie, and even you were saying she actually, she didn't want it, first of all. We couldn't get her on the podcast. And then second of all, it took a SWAT team to get her off the podcast. Uh, it's funny because I was working in the office here yesterday. And uh, and so I had the second uh, half playing in the background so I could listen to it. And uh, and she was working out in the living room here. And the next thing I know, she's sitting here in the office with me listening to it. <laughs> What'd she think? Uh, she's still shocked that anybody would even want to listen to it. But you're right. Uh, I made a list of some of the comments we've gotten on it. And I mean, there are some really complimentary comments coming in. Um, and some of my buddies on LinkedIn were chiming in and saying, hey, we all know it takes a special spouse to put up with our crap and keep the home fires burning. So a lot, a well, lot of good comments. It takes an even more special one to put up with you. You're damn right. I'll be the first to admit that. But uh, hey, not everybody, gets to work in with, not everybody gets to live with a peach like me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know where she comes on with this cocky shit. I, I'm not cocky. Well, maybe yeah. I was back then. You, you still are. Trust that was, me. That was a hundred years ago. <laughs> we went to get coffee one time. You go, hey, you see me on Netflix? Yeah, I look like Boyd Holbrook. No, <laughs> <laughs> and everybody went, who? <laughs> oh yeah. Hey, anyway, well, guys, well, that that was such a great episode, and and thank you guys for joining us. Uh, just a quick bit of housekeeping before we get into the rest of the episode today. Just head on over to Apple and Spotify. They both have the ability to review us. Give us five stars. We're working really hard every week to get those five stars. Also, head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. We have a new category on the podcast. Because of popular demand, we added a book list. And I know, Murph, you're going to say, who's the first book on the list and the, the best it's one? It's the best book. That's it. I love it. Well, we got so we got our book list. And here's what we did, guys, for the book list. Even though there are books written about things like Episode 9, with Paul Crane and Abe Perez was about the capture of El Chapo, and there were a lot of books written about it. Abe or Paul did not write a book, so we're not—we don't really want to help somebody else make money off of this. But if an if one of our guests is the author of a book, you know, and they've got and it, it's going to benefit them, that's why the book is on the list there. So it has to be written by the guest, you know, 
um, they have to be a part of it. So, but so we've got some good ones coming out and based upon who we've got coming up, like, I mean, I think Steve, we've told them, but we did, we got Jay Dobbins, Jaber, the legendary ATF undercover guy, the first patched member of the hell's angels coming up, you know, later. And he's got a couple books out. So we're going to be adding books to this list. I'm, I mean, I'm excited about this because everybody wanted it too. Oh yeah. We got some, uh, we've got a lot of guests coming up here soon that do have books out that some have movies written about them. Some of them have both. Some have written a book in and have a movie. Uh, so there's going to be some exciting stuff going on in 2022 from game of crimes. The only episode we had that was a little different, um, that had a movie, but not a book was the mule was Jeff Moore. So that started off actually as a column written by a, you know, a, a, a reporter and it turned into a movie, but there's no book to go with it. So that's a little, that's one of the little different things, but that's still pretty cool. But Hey guys, head on over to that. We've got our merch, you know, we've got, uh, and with our episodes too, like this one, we're going to be talking about some great pictures. Jay Dobbins sent us some great pictures. We've got, yeah, Jared Reston, a, a Jacksonville sheriff's officer that was shot seven times, the will to win. This one is coming up too. He's got some great pictures. So head on over to our website, but you really got to be on Patreon dot com slash game of crimes head on over to patreon we have got some awesome stuff we did like we said the world's the review of the world's greatest christmas movie die hard in fact right now as we record this i'm wearing my sweatshirt that says now i have a machine gun ho 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 yeah you are a ho <laughs> hey <laughs> <laughs> sorry you're th- you got me confused with jp he's the man slut <laughs> not, not me <laughs> But but Patreon, guys, head on over to Patreon. And like I said, we've got some more stuff coming out, Q&As coming out this month. Um, we've got um, our case of the month coming out. We've got the final installment. This will be our 12th episode of The Real DEA Narcos, talking about The Real DEA Narcos. It's my in-depth interview with Steve and JP. So number 12 is coming out. And then we're going to be changing some things up, a random surprise. So we have got a ton of content on Patreon, don't we, pal? I'm shocked. I, I'm shocked how much stuff we've got on there. We've got more stuff there than we do on the on the regular podcast. Pretty much, yeah. We've and we're cranking out, you know, two episodes a week for the podcast, you know, part one and two. So, but anyway, head on over there, uh, patreoncom crimes. You can also use uh, PayPal.com. Use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash game of crimes, whatever makes it easier for you to support the show and help us bring you even more exciting content. But as we get started, our standard disclaimer, remember, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the stories seriously. But we never take ourselves serious. And listen, I've seen some of the comments coming down. I usually don't read them, but don't take us too serious. We're trying to have some fun here. We bring in we bring in great guests that some of them you'll never hear anywhere else. So you can hear their stories firsthand. We don't try and tell their stories. We want you to hear from the horse's mouth. But when we're joking and smoking here, don't take it serious. It's just all about having fun with you. <laughs> yeah, man. Take a chill pill, man. You know, we're not storming the beaches at Normandy. Nobody's dying because of our <laughs> podcast. Come on. That's right. That's right. Well, Life's good. Well, well, Steve, speaking of not taking things seriously, guess what time it is? What time is it? It's time, it's time for, for Small Town, Town Police, Police Blotters. Hey, we've got, we've got some uh, ones that have come from all of all of these come from our listeners this time. Perfect. So Brandon St. George came to us via the Facebook Messenger. Now, you'll see a headline out there that says, you know, a crash leads to we. this guy's got his sixth, what's called operating while intoxicated charge for a Wausau man. So, Steve, this dude, this is in Wausau, I believe, Wisconsin. Let me see here. But anyway, 50-year-old Wausau man is facing his sixth drunk driving charge. 
which okay, that sounds like standard, right? Investigation began when an officer was getting gas at a quick trip, was approached by a man who showed the officer a truck with his headlights in the ditch behind the gas station. The truck was unoccupied, but the officer does his investigation. He finds it. He finds this guy identified as Brian S. Carl, who returned to the scene with four other people, tried to attach a tow strap to the truck and pull it out. So when the officer started giving instructions for a field sobriety test, Carl said, don't yell at me because my wiener hurts, okay? <laughs> what, he dropped his hot dog? I don't know, but he said the officer noted in his report that the topic of wieners had not come up. So this was a highly unusual statement to make at the time. No shock to everybody else. He tested twice the legal limit, was arrested, and taken to jail. Well, you know, in most states, I mean, you hit that third DUI, that's considered a felony, and you're felony for a while. This guy's number six. Number six. Well, hey, keeping the theme going of dealing with wieners, this one actually comes from Sherry Foster, who was episode 29. That's our girl. That's And she sent us one. And, of course, it comes from Florida. Everything has to come from Florida. Now, good stuff Steve, down here. Good stuff. In the day, I'm sure you arrested people like I did who said, you find them with drugs, you find them with a the gun, they go, that's not mine, right? Mm-hmm. And they might have a plausible explanation, right? Yeah, I've heard the stories. <laughs> Not, not this time. <laughs> Florida man's with drugs around his penis denies they were his. Florida <laughs> authorities say they found cocaine and methamphetamine wrapped around a man's penis during a traffic stop, but the man denied the drugs were his. They stopped the vehicle without his lights on at 4 a.m. on Saturday. He was arrested on charges of DUI and marijuana possession. They found a gun under the passenger seat and while searching the car and discovered the drugs while searching the passenger. The man said the drugs were not his, but didn't say who the drugs belonged to. <laughs> Well, did they open a case for sexual assault? Because that man has been sexually assaulted, I'm telling you. <laughs> I don't know. I would have told him, hey, they belong to somebody named Dick. <laughs> uh, well, I wish I had a drum here. <laughs> yeah, Dick. All right. Well, hey, this next one, this next one comes from across, way across the pond. This one comes from Sweden. And Therese, I won't use Therese's last name based on the request because Therese is currently a serving law enforcement officer with the Swedish National Police. Great. And may, may be coming over to the United States, but Therese says, hey, starts off by saying, I'm so proud to be a part of Swedish law enforcement. We absolutely are focusing on the important areas of crime fighting. Thank you for a great podcast. I love it. But then here's the story, Steve. Okay. Five cartons of apples go missing. A burglary in a truck occurred in East Helsingborg last night. A truck driver who was sleeping in the vehicle alerted police that five cartons of apples were missing. The police have started the search, but no one has yet been arrested or suspected in the case. The case of the missing apples. Well, you know, I've been to Sweden. It is a beautiful country there. The people were so nice. Javier and I went over and spoke. And uh, I hope that's the most serious crime you have there. Is that miss case of the missing apples? <laughs> you know what they say: an apple a day keeps the burglars away. So well, you know, apparently, apparently, apparently. Well, now, Steve, it's time for what year was it? Woohoo! I'm just something I really look toward to all week long. Yeah, yeah. You've got the same record on this that Georgia has against Alabama. <laughs> oh, Sherry, Sherry, you take him out. If you don't take him out, yeah. I will. So this one comes to us from the San Francisco Examiner on the 15th of February. You just have to tell me what year. It says, Dead Burglar and Live Butler. A masked desperado shot to death in a California street residence. Frank J. Miller killed the thief but was himself badly wounded. So this is the escape of two Confederates. But for the plucky fight of the wounded man, the robbers would have looted the home of J.L. Franklin. So Frank Miller is a butler. 
in the home of J.L. Franklin. He was shot yesterday morning by a masked burglar. He killed the burglar week and half days from a bullet wound in the neck. Miller fought the robber with tenacity and stubbornness from the very outset. It was a fierce, sharp struggle for life and liberty. Anyways, what happened is he was shot. He was able to grab the burglar, shoot him a few times, and it was over. The battle over, Miller with a bullet in his neck sank into unconsciousness, and on top of him lay the dying burglar. Wow. Wow, that's, well, that's not modern day because they'd never write it like that. No, and when the police reached the house, having been attracted by whistles blown by the frightened Franklin, the burglar grasped once or twice and was dead. So, I just gave you a clue. So what year was it? Was it February 15th, 1916, 1906, or 1896? Hmm, you gave me a clue that I didn't pick up on a clue at all. So let's say 1916. And your record, like Georgia, remains intact. You are the undefeated, <laughs> defeated. That's like I say, you're going to be a leader or a follower. I'm going to be the leader of the losers. It was 1896. I gave you a clue. Whistle. Blue whistles. When did cops blow whistles? I don't know. You can blow anytime you want to. <laughs> oh, sorry. I should have said that. I'm sorry. That was, yeah, that was crude and rude. I apologize, everyone. And socially unacceptable. Yes. Here we go. All right. All right. So, anyway. Now, let's see right there. We just had some fun. It's okay to have fun. Nobody died. Nobody right. died. Right. Hey, so this one, this one, this next episode, so now teeing this up. So this next episode is going to be interesting. We've got a couple that are coming out. They're going to deal with outlaw motorcycle gangs. And then when we talk to Jaybird, Jay Dobbins, he really gets into talking about the case. But what we wanted to do, and something we haven't really, we've only done a couple times, like with Stephen Matelski. Let's, Steve, let's, you know, we want to talk about the world of outlaw motorcycle gangs, you know, and how they work and how they operate. And uh, we were able, through our buddy Lou Veloza, you contacted Lou. Lou was episode four. We're able to find somebody who has worked across all of these gangs, you know, has worked with Lou, has worked with Jay. And the guy was just like Stephen Matelski, man. Class is in session. The professor is in. We had a we had a master's level course on outlaw biker gangs. Absolutely. And, and you know, I have Z, I was a cop for 38 years. I have zero experience with motorcycle gangs. So I'm way out of my element when we were trying to talk. But um, the way we met Steve Cook, our guest today, Lou Velozzi, no, Steve, and Steve was looking for guest instructors for, he puts on, he's got his own training academy, which he's going to tell you about. And uh, so he's going to bring Javier and I in to speak to a, a class here in 2022. And that's how we met. And as I'm telling him about the podcast, he started telling me about what he's doing. And that's how we came about bringing him on. Now, his experience is, is at least nationally renowned here in the United States, if not world renowned. Uh, he's all over the place. He's got some stuff going on on TV, documentaries, TV shows. I mean, this guy's got it going on. It's it's uh, impressive to hear what he's up to. Well, but the only way to hear him is we got to ask people, and I got to ask you, Murph. Are you ready to play the biggest game of all? Actually, the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the game of crimes. Absolutely, and everybody get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Let's listen to Steve Cook and learn everything you can about outlaw, outlaw motorcycle gangs. Hey, well, guys, we've always told you that we're going to do some really cool stuff. And I, this episode's going to be real cool, like we said in our intro. This one came uh, via our buddy from episode four, Lou Velozzi. And uh, we got to learn about Steve Cook this way. So Steve Cook from somewhere in the Midwest, welcome to Game of Crimes. Thanks for having me. 
Hey, just glad you're not from Kansas. No, nobody claims being from Kansas. There you go. All right. Good answer. It's going to be a very, thank you guys for being on the podcast. We'll see you here again next week. All right. That's okay. I'll take that shit because you're from the state of misery and uh, eight of the worst weeks of my life were spent at Fort Lost in the Woods, misery. So we know how fun the humidity is in misery, but uh, hey, Steve, so as we do with everybody, when we get started, let's talk about you know, how the hell you got into law enforcement. Now, one thing, folks, that we're going to see is we're not going to tell you where Steve, exactly where Steve works. He's just in the Kansas City metro area. We've just, you know, some of the work he does, we just got to keep it on the down low. But uh, hey, Steve, take it from there. Just tell us, you know, like growing up and stuff, how the hell, you know, what made you decide to get into law enforcement other than your 14 arrests by the time you were 18? Well, I can tell you, I had no desire to be a cop whatsoever. My uh, father was a police chief. So you can kind of imagine how that went growing up. My uh, older brother was a cop over in Kansas City. My uncle was a cop. And uh, my, well, I, I guess you wouldn't say he was, I don't know what you'd call him. I had another relative uh, <laughs> that was a cop, but I'm not really sure. He was kind of by, by marriage, not blood. So I'm not really sure what you would call him. But he was a cop also. So I had him all around me. Uh, that was the last thing I wanted to do. I was a street racer. I used to go out. Uh, I had a 89 Mustang GT convertible, nitrous oxide, all the all the bells and whistles. Is that the uh, HO, the 5 liter HO yep. engine in that? 5 yeah. 5 liter had uh, you know the 355 gears in the rear end and the you know no catalytic converters, the the dream. And I'd go out and street race, I'd run from the cops, uh, did it successfully more than once and uh, <laughs> never had any aspirations of getting in law enforcement, wanted to stay as far away from it as I could because that's what everybody else was doing. Uh, lo and behold, one night, my older brother uh, was going to work. He worked South Patrol in Kansas City, and uh, my girlfriend was out of town, and that's pretty much, you know, I spent all my time with her, and he's like, well, what are you going to do? And I said, eh, I really don't have any plans. And he goes, well, why don't you come do a ride-along with me? And I'm like, uh, why would I want to do a ride-along? And he goes, well, just trust me, you know, you have a good time, uh, you know, I'll buy dinner, which, you know, how that goes. He didn't buy shit. He's a cop. We got it for free. But that's a whole <laughs> other story. So I decided, yeah, okay, I'll go. Well, wait a minute. He may have got it for free, but I bet you he made you pay half of what it would have cost, right? Oh, no. He, he, he <laughs> you know, he popped for McDonald's. I mean, you can't, can't argue with that. So, <laughs> so we go out and, uh, you know, I'm riding along and they put out a... Uh, robbery at a 7-Eleven. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but they're kind of like mm. quick trips and, and different things Oh, no, things we got like a that. ton of them out here, yeah, a.k.a. Stop and Robs. Stop and Robs. So they put out an armed robbery, and, you know, we're out in the area driving around and, you know, sees this guy walking down the street, and I don't think anything of it, and all of a sudden he, you know, whips a bitch real quick, and the guy takes off running on foot, and he's out after him, and I'm sitting in the car, and... I'm listening to the police radio and all this drama going on, and, and I'm starting to get a little bit of an adrenaline pump, kind of like I did when I was racing cars. And I thought, wow, this is kind of cool. So he drags this guy back to the car, locks him up, and uh, then we ended up going on a few other interesting you know, encounters over the course of the night. And I mean, by the time the shift was wrapped, I, I was kind of, I was hooked, I thought. You know, I think I might be able to get behind this. I can drive fast uh, with my lights on or without, and <laughs> nobody's going to be chasing me. And I can kind of, you know, do what I do. And I consider myself a pretty damn good driver. 
So, uh, lo and behold, next thing you know, he got me a job working at uh, the city jail down at uh, Kansas City, Missouri, and kind of the rest is history, I, I'd say. Steve, this sound, Murph, this sounds so familiar because we just talked to Jared Reston, and the one thing he said to me, he said one of the reasons he became a cop because he could drive fast and not get tickets. That's exactly right. <laughs> the secret is out. The secret is out, folks. Hey, well, Steve, so um, you, you rode along with him. What was it about when you said you flipped around on that guy after that robbery? What was it that your brother saw that you didn't at that time? Did he tell you later why he turned around, you know, why he said this is the guy? Well, it's interesting you ask that because it wasn't even really anything matching the description that was put out. Because I remember hearing that, and I think the guy had stripped his you know, sweatshirt or whatever, got rid of his ball cap. But I think it's just something that, you know, as you all know, some people have that sixth sense. You know, you can kind of look like, I can tell you personally, my, uh, my old supervisor used to call me a shit magnet because I could drive down the street, I could look at a car, and I could tell you, there's guns in that car, there's dope in it, there's warrants in it. I don't know how I knew, I just knew. I could just look at it, and I could look at the occupants and maybe the way that they looked at me or didn't look at me, and I was like, okay, well, we're, on, we're on here. So I think it was kind of the same thing. He just, he just knew. That's, that being a shit magnet is much better than being a bullet magnet like Jared was. <laughs> yeah. This guy got shot yeah. seven well, times. Yeah, this guy we talked to yesterday, he should be on the episode after you shot seven times. But yeah, he just attracts lead, uh, even though mm -hmm. you shouldn't be attracting it like that. But but no, Steve, that that's actually very interesting, too, because, you know, a lot of times, too, you think about through your work. It's it's you look at the people will drive past you and some people are like, oh, it's the cops. And some of them, when they're frozen with fear, you, you get, start getting the tells. Right. You start looking at people and go. Yeah. Yeah. You're getting pulled over, pal. I don't know what you're going to jail for, but there's something in that car that but uh, but. That was well, the Kansas. Never, now this this is not profiling, so don't anybody get any no, ideas out we there. Did, this we is didn't just mention good race, work. sex, anything. It's the look in people's eyes. You know, it's just the way they respond. Or it's like the one time somebody just they saw the cop, saw me sitting there, state trooper, just drove right through a stoplight because they were so worried about what I was going to do. And I'm like, you know why I'm pulling you over, right? So, but uh, hey, Steve. Well, now later on we're going to be talking about motorcycles, but. During this time, you said you were doing street racers. Did you have an interest in motorcycles at that time? Not at all. I, I never rode dirt bikes. Uh, I was never interested in riding motorcycles. Uh, I honestly can't even really tell you. I, I guess just investigating motorcycle gangs is what made me interested in motorcycles. I, I think it was kind of one of those things is I've, I figured if this is the path that I'm going to travel – I probably ought to understand it a little bit better, and if I'm going to go the places that they're at, uh, probably going to look a lot better showing up on a bike than in a car. So I, I think for you know basic you know purpose, that's what how it happened. Yeah, because you, you're not going to show up to some of these places on a Honda or a Kawasaki or a Yamaha. So you got to be riding the hog, the big Harley. So, well, let's go from there then. So you, you decided that, Hey, this is something I want to do. So how did you go about, uh, did you stay in the same place where your dad was chief at? Did you go somewhere different? No, I stayed at the same place. Was he chief when you got on? No, no, he, uh, he'd been gone for, uh, the department for quite some time. And he actually, uh, ran a private security company at, at the time I got into, to law enforcement. So so what was the application process like going through there? Did the people hold it against you that you were the chief son coming through or did the, did that help you? 
Yeah, you know, I don't think it helped or hurt. There were, weren't a lot of guys still around uh, that had been there, but I think the the few that were, they liked him. Uh, he was, you know, he was a solid guy. He was, you know, pretty easy going. So I, I don't think that was a, a problem for me. Uh, I think, you know, the big problem is the whole process to get hired in the first place. I mean, we can't give the job away nowadays, but when I applied, there was like 250 applicants for one position. Uh, and it was, wow. you know, it was extremely competitive. Nowadays we get 50 applicants for 15 positions and, Honestly, you know, half of them don't work out right from the start. Well, yeah, the you know, the majority of them really. Yeah, you, know, you you take the best 15 of 50 doesn't mean those 15 are going to be good cops. It just means that they're, they're the best of the the pool you were offered. Yeah. They have the least problems out of all of them. So, yeah, so you got on the the, the police department. So, what was it like, you know, you start off uh because you're on a police department, you start off on the street. So what was it like when you finally got the uniform, finally got the car, you know, got, went through the academy, all that good stuff? How long, What was your training program like there at the police department? Was it, you know, back in the day when you got on, was it pretty uh, rigorous and stuff, or was it more just kind of like OJT? Well, I mean, you had your field training officer, uh, which I think is still pretty standard uh, across the board with every place, but, you know, you went through your break-in period with your training officer and, you know, you either made it or you didn't. And, you know, there's a lot of people that, that don't, I've always struggled with that concept because 99% of this is common sense. I mean, it, it really is. And sure there's geography issues and report writing issues and things like that, but the job itself really isn't that difficult you know, you got to be able to deal with people and you got to be able to problem solve. And that's what most of it is. And most of the stuff, if you do it right, uh, you can diffuse, deescalate, you know, most individuals and make them do what you want them to do. Yeah. Cause uh, you know, people think oh, you just want to make arrests. Now, if you knew how much paperwork was involved in arrests, you really don't want to make an arrest unless you have to, because I don't know about you, but Murph, I imagine even when you were back there and and I'm going to say it right this time, Bluefield, West Virginia, a.k.a. Krusty Krab. That's like a first right there. Yeah, but, um, but well, I said it because Connie said in the in the epi episode 30 we just dropped, by the way, she's getting a lot of great reviews on that. She said she didn't like people making fun of West Virginia, so I listened to that part of it. So I'm going to lay off for just a little <laughs> while until I make sure she's not listening to the podcast. But, you know, but, but it was time. I mean, people think it's a – literally, it's the truth. It's like you would make an arrest, like for DUI or something else, and the people would beat you out of this jail and out of the station before you're even done with the paperwork. I'm sure you went through that even with DEA, right? Oh, unfortunately. And you're right. It's like that. And unfortunately, there's just so many misconceptions. I mean, you could go down a whole different rabbit hole on law enforcement as far as what people, you know, perceive to be the truth and what is actually the truth about, you know, what the job is. Yeah, because what is perceived is real for a lot of folks. And so they'll watch something on TV and they go, well, you guys can't do that. And I think it was uh, Sherry Foster, uh, Murph, when we talked with her, she was saying that there was this belief in the UC community when they were working UC cases that if they asked you if you were a cop three times and you said no, <laughs> then that was entrapment. <laughs> it's yeah. like, oh, really? Um, but you, you keep on believing that. That's going to work out good for you. Absolutely. You know, we don't target the smartest people, do we? Well, and it's, it's unfortunately, it's the uh, painting with the broad brush. Uh, syndrome because I I couldn't even count the number of times I've had someone accuse me of, you know, oh, you're a racist, you're a racist cop. And it's like, if you really had any idea the kind of shit that I've done 
put myself through uh, sacrifices I've made that I didn't have to do by targeting motorcycle gang members, white supremacists, uh, militia-type people, people that actually to this day, there's, there's people that, you know, if they could get a crack at me, they would take it. And it's like for you to make a statement like that, it just shows your, your ignorance uh, and the fact that, you know, you talk about people judging people, you're judging somebody with zero facts to back it up. And, you know, I, I think for my purpose, I mean, you know, you, you shrug it off like you do anything else, but that's probably the most insulting part of the job is that people make assumptions without any, you know, knowing anything about, you know, what you've actually done. It's just a, you know, it's a convenient argument that, you know, they, they again, they know nothing about us. And, and I love it when, you know, people say, oh, you're just, you're a racist. You don't like black and brown people. Like, you know, before you tell me that about the brown people, you might want to look at my background here because both of my daughters are from South America. They're adopted. You know, I don't think I'm racist. Maybe I am, but I'm racist against stupid people. <laughs> We had an officer, white officer one time that was married to a woman who was black and they accused him of being a racist and she just happened to show up and it was like, hey, maybe you want to meet my wife over here. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> but you know, but, but to your point, Steve, though, because folks for, for the episode, we're calling Murph Murph like we normally do and Steve Cook, Steve, uh, just to keep things uh, sane here. But Steve, but you know, but that, that's something, you know, obviously we all deal with that, but it's one of the things is like everybody that we've talked to, everybody wanted to get into this because they wanted to serve, they wanted to make a difference. And for you, you found a way to do that. What we want to do is start kind of driving towards what got you into the motorcycle stuff. But when you were working the street, at what point working the street, did you start thinking and going, hey, man, I want to get involved in this motorcycle stuff? Was there a particular incident? Was there a particular arrest or the chance to be on a task force or anything like that that started you this direction? No, I, I was interested in it from the time I was a civilian jailer because after my brother got me that job, he was, you know, working bikers already in the field, and he would arrest guys. He would bring them down to, to the jail, and, of course, you know, hey, little bro, I need, uh, you know, photocopy anything that they've got on them, paperwork, you know, whatever they got in their wallet. Uh, get me mug shots, which, you know, back then was basically Polaroids. I mean, that's at the tech level we were operating under. Uh, you know, basically just kind of, you know, fingerprint cards because he kept, you know, biker books, you know, not, not like you have nowadays. Everything's online. Everything's in a PDF. Yeah, but that's old school. Three ring binder. Exactly. You had stuff in there. Yeah, pictures, right? Yeah, he, he had the whole nine yards. And the stuff you're talking about getting out of the pockets, that's what affectionately we all call, call like pocket litter, you know, and because uh, there's pocket trash, yeah, pocket. And there is treasure in those many times. And Steve, was it uh, trying to think of the episode? It might have been. Was it Kevin Stevens or was it? No, it was Jeff Moore when he was doing Leo Sharp found one piece of paper in his pocket with a telephone number that led to so many right. arrests, wasn't it? That was the big break. That's exactly right. Yeah, see, I do remember some stuff. And if you hear something going across my mic, it's my huge cat that can't stand to be away from me. So she... <laughs> I'm spudding that's up. Yeah, this this one's this one's called Fanny. But uh, Steve, back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So you started, as you started working this stuff, what, how many years were you into your job? You've worked on several task forces. So how many years were you into job before you had the chance to move from being a, a patrol officer into doing something more specialized or something more on target with what you wanted to do? I spent 
almost exactly to the day, two years in uniform patrol, uh, and then I was transferred out to a multi-jurisdictional drug task force. The reason that I was able to get that at such a, you know, usually that's a, a slot that you have to have a lot of experience for, but I think my second year on patrol, I made some stupid, like, 700 drug arrests. I mean, just some stupid number. And, and, you know, take that with somewhat a grain of salt because a lot of them were misdemeanor. You know, you catch somebody with a, you know, quarter gram of meth or a couple of ounces of of marijuana or something. But, you know, you're still making constant drug arrests, which means your drug unit is getting, you know, sources and, you know, informants, search warrants, things like that. So I had made so many drug arrests that when we went to the interview, they were just like, well, I mean, what else are we going to do? I mean, how, how can we not take this person? Their self-initiation alone uh, shows us, you know, the, the work ethic. So that got me out there and, and I ended up spending you know, a little over six and a half years on that uh, task force. So you were two years in. How old were you about the when the time that you uh, had two years on the department? Uh, I'd say, let me think here. I got on in 93, um, so about 24. So, yeah, still relatively young, you know, got in there and stuff. Is that the last time you had a uniform on? Uh, no. You know, I occasionally take uh, overtime gigs or, you know, off-duty jobs or things like that that you still require it, but... I'm not, not against it. I mean, it's, you know, uh, the thing that that's, that's a funny thing that you say because you get a lot of prima donnas in this line of work and they get into a task force or they get into investigations of some kind. And then they, they're like, you know, they act like they're above putting a uniform on. And it's like, you know, you realize when you applied for this job, we all applied to be cops, you know, you applied to get that uniform so you could go out chase a radio, uh, and, you know, respond on calls. And then for these guys to, I, I guess it's just the classic forgetting where you came from. Uh, you know, I mean, you don't forget where you came from, you know, that's, you know, that's what built you up and got you to where you're at now. Well, and when you're in uniform, you don't have to worry about what you're going to wear to work. It really <laughs> simplifies getting ready and getting out the door. It, it's garanimals for adults. Everything always, <laughs> everything always matches. You don't have to worry yep. about what am I going to wear today? The blue, the blue, or the blue? Well, I think I'll have the blue. Now, you did have a choice. You could wear socks and underwear. That might be different, but the uniform, yeah, it was the same. So, hey, when you when you got on, too, uh, just, just for uh, fun and shits and giggles, uh, what was your equipment like? What did you guys carry for sidearms? Um, what did your uniform look like? Well, when I started, we had the, you know, the polyester, you know, the stripes down the legs and, you know, the whole nine yards that I'd, what I'd call a really like a class A type uniform. I mean, it was, you know, less the, the tie and things like that. But I mean, um, you know, nowadays everybody kind of wears, I shouldn't say everybody, but most places wear the BDU style. Yeah. The utilities and stuff. A lot more functional, you know, for, for that application. Uh, I have to tell you, I cannot remember what we, I know we used to carry Sig Sours and I think that's what we had when I started. Uh, we have Glocks now, but, uh, yeah, I, I can't even remember what caliber because we went through two or three different, different transitions. Yeah. yeah. So you got on the task force. So explain to us this task force, how many agencies are involved? How wide of an area do you cover and who's leading this task force? Well, there were, you know, 
pretty much all the the eastern uh, agencies in the county. So I think there were probably at the time I was out there maybe six or seven different agencies that were had people actually uh, assigned out there. And then we had an officer in charge that uh, was a civilian position, but he oversaw the, the operation. And the guy that we had for the majority of the time that I was out there uh, was, you know, hands down, no question, the best boss I've ever had. Nice. Was that bo- was that boss from uh, was he a somebody hired to run this or did he come from another department? He was hired to run it, and I'm going to try not to choke too much saying it, but he was a <laughs> retired FBI supervisor, and <laughs> I cringed when they said they were hiring this guy. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me! This is going to be the stupidest place on the planet. I mean, we're, we're going to have out- to go back to wearing suits and ties. Yeah, and- we're, we're yeah. going to be out, you know buying drugs from each other, uh, you know, because <laughs> I just was like, this is going to be a train wreck. And it turned out this guy, a guy named Mike Shanahan, he was probably the smartest cop I've ever met, uh, probably was paid the greatest compliment that I've ever been paid in my 28 years. Uh, when, you know, th- this guy, just to give you a little of his background, he was, uh, one of the investigative supervisors at the Oklahoma city bombing. Uh, he had some kind of crazy record for doing like the most title three applications, uh, of anybody in the bureau. Uh, if you ever saw the movie casino, uh, the, it was the, called the Strawman case that was run out of Kansas city. He was at Caesar's palace when they raided the cash room. Uh, he worked the, uh, kidnapping of one of the Osmond kids. I mean, he, he had done some high, high profile stuff. And i am never forget it one day. He told me, he said, you know what? He goes, you are better of an investigator than any agent I've ever had work for me. And wow. uh, I thought, you know what? To, to get that from him, that's probably the, the highest, you know, compliment that I'm ever going to get in this job. Very nice. Very Dang, unusual. even Murph's going to have to nod his head and say, FBI guy, you're okay. <laughs> yeah, he is. He is. You know, we bust on them all the time, but they got some great people. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the other thing that, that was great about him. About eight months into being at the task force, he finally realized how screwed up the federal government was. And he started referring to himself as a local instead of a retired fed. And he turned out hating the FBI and would get into it all the time with them because we'd have cases that would cross each other and he'd be chewing them out and, you know, get out of our business. I, we've got this handled, but the thing that he did that was probably the greatest benefit to my career is he obviously had a phenomenal relationship with the United States attorney's office and the uh, narcotics chief down there at the time was a guy named Mark Miller, who was a, a stellar U S attorney. And he went down to Mark and he said, listen, I've got this task force now. I've got some really good, competent investigators. I want them to be able to bring their own cases down here without having an adopting federal agency. And Mark was like, okay, we'll, we'll give it a try. And 300 defendants later, uh, which is a, around the number that I've done personally, uh, I, I've been operating out of that office since, uh, you know, around ni- 1995. And, uh, you know, even uh, to the degree that I had a, a key card to get in and out of the U.S. Attorney's Office, 
that the feds, you know, federal agents didn't even have one because they knew, you know, quality work that I do. And if I, you ask me for something, you're going to get it. And I've been very blessed. I, I've got a fantastic relationship with all the defense attorneys, too. I mean, uh, some that I call friends that, you know, I'll go have lunch with. But everybody knows with me, you know, what you see is what you get. If I tell you something, that's, that's the way it was. I'm not going to play games with you. You know, and for our listeners, that's, that's a big deal, what you just mentioned about a state or local officer being able to take a case into a, a United States attorney's office for federal prosecution without a sponsoring federal agency. And I know that sounds asinine, but I mean, just think about it. They would be overwhelmed with cases if that happened all the time. So there's a reason for that. But that's a, that's a real show of respect for the quality of work that you're doing, that they're giving you that blessing to come on in. I bet, I'll bet, you know, I'm pretty sure DEA and the FBI were probably pitching a bitch to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Why are you letting this local guy come in here? Well, I do know that there was a year that uh, I outstatted, uh, I'm not going to say which federal agency, but one of the local federal agencies. Uh, I had more indictments than their entire, you know, field division did. Uh, and granted, I get it. Their paperwork's a little bit more intensive and, and things like that. But <laughs> That's a that, nice way to put it, intensive. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they we're, we're talking maybe a dozen agents and I, I ran circles around the whole, you know, group. So that was, uh, that was kind of fun to do too. Well, in terms of keeping busy, uh, was this, now how was this task force funded? I mean, everybody put in their officers, but was there a pot of money that like a council of governments or people put together to make, because who paid for the salaries of Mike Shanahan, you know, and the officer in charge? How did, how did you guys fund this in terms of running it? Because it's, it's for, for a lot of folks listening to a lot of time when there's a federal task force, pretty clear where the money comes from, you know, and how things work. But this one was all local, right? Yeah, there was a three quarter cent sales tax that uh, everybody in, in that, excuse me, county, you know, if you bought a meal, you went to a movie, you bought something at a store, there was a three quarter cents, uh, a tax that went to the fund, the task force. So we had a ton of money. Wow. That's unusual. Yeah. Most of the time you're begging for money or having to t adopt, you know, take seizures and, you know, sell things, you know, and, uh, you know, fund it that way. So that's, that's actually, and having a tax base like that, because that ensures anybody who's visiting the area, even if they're not local, everybody's participating, you know, in funding this task force, including many of the people you arrested, because I'm sure many of them bought shit in your area and paid the tax. Mm -hmm. Hey, I pay your wages. Oh, okay. Yes, you do. But uh, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much. Like, uh, hey, so Steve, so you did that for six and a half years. What, at what point did it happen during that six and a half or did it happen later? When did you start now looking at motorcycles? I pretty much did that from day one. Uh, I, I've always had, you know, like I said, ever since I was in the jail, uh, that kind of got the, the fire lit. And from that time on, I just started, you know, educating myself and, you know, knowing that a lot of times training's hard to come by, I started sending myself to training. And I, and I looked at it, you know, I'm, I'm not a college graduate, so I kind of looked at it as the same way as, you know what? You pay for education, whether you're doing it to get a degree or you're doing it to get a specialty in some other area. So I would uh, fund my own training. I went to several conferences in uh, California and, and, and different places and, you know, started hooking up with some guys that were uh, LAPD, L.A. Sheriff's Office, uh, you know, LAPD guy named Mike Vaughn, uh, God rest his soul, probably one of the, you know, most 
well-known biker cops uh, in the history of the Los Angeles Police Department. I got to meet him and learn from him. Uh, you know, Michael Bubba Williams, another guy, L.A. Sheriff's Office. Uh, he, was a, he was a guru. Everybody knew who Bubba was. Uh, a, a guy named Chris Omont. He was a, a captain up in Hennepin County, Minnesota. Ended up uh, running the Minnesota Gang Strike Force up there. I started meeting all of these other biker investigators from all over the country and, you know, started, you know, getting that information, uh, started meeting a lot of the ATF guys. I mean, you know, guys like John Ciccone, you know, I mean, anybody that's ever seen a big biker case knows who John Ciccone is. You know, he ran the Laughlin, uh, river run shootout at, at the casino. I mean, that I mean, he was a case agent on that. He ran a lot of the big, uh, infiltration cases that ATF did on the West Coast. So I, I made the right friends and learned a lot about it. And, you know, like, like anything else, I mean, that's that's how you get, you know, knowledge. You, you got to get it from other people that uh, have been doing it for longer. So at, at the time, uh, during that time out there, uh, time you were on the task force, let's start laying the groundwork too. What were the major motorcycle gangs out there that constituted the biggest problem for your area? Oh, you know, the El Forstero. The Galloping Goose, Sons of Silence, uh, the Rogues sometimes over on the Kansas side, uh, the Loners. Those are the primary groups that, you know, you deal with on on a regular basis. Now, those are just local groups, right? Just confined to a specific geographic area? Well, uh, not really. I mean, the L4 Stero and Galloping Goose, they're nationwide. Uh, Sons of Silence, they're nationwide and also over in Germany. Uh, groups like the the rogues and loners are they're a little bit smaller, uh, you know, groups. But yeah, I mean, by and large, uh, you know, you, you might loners you might see them in I don't know California, Arizona, Oklahoma, places like that. But uh, yeah, so a lot of the groups that we dealt with here had a pretty good footprint, and even though they might not have had a lot of members, I mean, I think. Bell Forstero and Galloping Goose might have had 175 guys nationwide, but they were really tight with the Hells Angels. So you would always get them coming through here, and they would come to, you know, the Lake of the Ozarks and have their their USA runs and things like that. So, but you know, being being on I-70, you get a lot of bleed through. So you know, everybody going point to point. Oh yeah, especially we'll talk about Sturgis later when they, everybody's going up to Sturgis. You know, you got a lot of people coming through. What were the main uh, lines of crime that most of these gangs were, most of the motorcycle gangs were involved in. What, what, what constituted their stock and trade? Well, they were all into motorcycle theft. I mean, that was a, a staple. It's just so, it's so easy to do. I mean, you steal a Harley and, you know, you discard the, you know, engine transmission cases and swap out the frame. You can get aftermarket frames all day long, you know, especially on eBay you know, get you a Paco or a Santee or something like that. And, uh, you know, throw some, throw some paint on it. And pretty soon you've got a, what they classify as a special construction, you know, custom motorcycle. In reality, it's a stolen bike, you know, internal components and, and everything else, but they've got a very little amount of money wrapped up into it. Yeah. What about, um, getting into drugs, violent crime, stuff like that? What were some of the other things that, uh, were either directly related to them or, you know, tangential, but the other things that they got involved in? Well, methamphetamine, I mean, that was the, you know, the key. 
especially in the Midwest. I mean, that's always been, you know, kind of ground zero for that kind of activity. So, yeah, I mean, meth trafficking, uh, even being involved in the manufacturing uh, aspects of it, you know, obviously, you know, current day, pretty much everybody deals with the cartels. That's the easiest way. But back in the mid-90s, Mexican dope wasn't that good as far as meth is concerned. It was dirty. Uh, it was hard for, you know, we have a lot of smokers. Uh, it would burn up in the pipe on you. It just wasn't a good uh, purity-wise for smoke. Now, obviously, their cocaine was great, but that wasn't the drug of choice here. So the best meth you were going to get was either, you know, your, your red P iodine uh, method or your Nazi method with anhydrous, which we had a lot of both. And you could get some pretty good, clean, you know, shards uh, of glass, uh, you know, for meth and smoked up great. These guys liked it. So you had, uh, did you guys have labs in your jurisdiction? Oh, tons. Meth labs? Tons. So you, you've been through all the training and all that, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I say. You got, you got, um, later got, <laughs> you ended up doing the clandestine laboratory stuff, what they used to call the clan lab. So um, but during the time you're on the drug task force, how many of your cases were, uh, related to motorcycle gangs, uh, versus the other ones? You know, if, do you remember like a percentage, half and half, a fourth? You know, it's hard to say. Cause you know, especially when you're dealing with methamphetamine, what people don't realize is, is it's a very small community, meaning pretty much everybody in the meth business in a certain geographic area knows each other in a roundabout way. Uh, you may have a, a group of seven or eight people that are involved in a, you know, trafficking organization, but they always know somebody that's in another group who's got seven or eight people who knows somebody in another group. And you could probably link them all together somehow if you really had to. Uh, so, you know, because the bikers were so involved just in the, the, the process of it, they kind of had their fingers in it all over the place. So even if you weren't working an actual case on a member, uh, you were still probably dealing with an associate or, you know, somebody that they were dealing with down the chain. Linkage to it. So during this time, how much, um, you know, cause we'll talk later too. I mean, there's a huge shootout that happened with wake, you know, down in Waco, Texas with the gangs and, you know, there was some shootouts to uh, Laughlin, like you're talking about during the time up there in Kansas city. Cause you know, the, a lot of people don't realize Kansas City, not only was it a hub for stuff like this, it was also a hub for organized crime. And as we found out, too, it's a hub for, you know, cartel activity. You know, a lot of dope because of I-70 will go through there. Um, did you have any major violent incidents with these guys during that time? Were there any gang-on-gang, uh, -gang, you know, bad shootings or anything like that? No, and the reason being is is they had uh, the El Forstero and the Galloping Goose. They were considered to be brother clubs, I guess, for lack of better terms. And they had something called a, a hundred mile rule, meaning no other clubs were allowed to operate within a hundred miles of Kansas city. And they enforced it pretty uh, rigorously and they did have street credibility. And a lot of people stayed away. They, they didn't want the problems. They knew the direction it would head. Uh, if they did it, uh, the galloping goose had fought a pretty bloody war with the outlaws in Chicago, uh, prior to this. So people knew that they meant business. So they were able to kind of keep that to a minimum where there wasn't a lot of that stuff, you know, kicking off. When you say street credibility, can you explain what that means? Well, I think people knew that 
you know, they weren't uh, just a lot of bark, that they had some bite behind them. So if you put their feet to the fire and tried to test them, they weren't just going to go, oh, okay, well, I, I guess they called our bluff and go on with their business. Uh, they, they'd, they'd go after you. And, you know, to whatever means that, that you know, took uh, up to and including, you know, catching them out at a bar and, you know, beating them with ball-peen hammers and flashlights and, and whatever else. So I think people knew that, uh, you know, they were a business club and, you know, you didn't want to cross paths with them unless you had the uh, appropriate resources. Yeah, because like you say, you know, they they tuned people up. I mean, that's what they did. That was the only credibility they have was saying following through on threats. Not, not a threat. You come within 100 miles, this is how we deal with you. Um, as you moved on during this task force, what you, you finally left the task force after six and a half years. Did you leave it because your time was up on there? Did you want to go do something different? What, what did you do after the, this uh, multi-jurisdictional drug task force? Yeah, you know, time limit was uh, uh, approaching an end and just, you know, found an opportunity to uh, get, you know, stay in investigations, but go to, a you know, another division basically. So that, that's essentially what I did. You know, I had to go through a process and, uh, everything and get a selection process. And, uh, ultimately that occurred. So, uh, I was able to, you know, kind of transition into a more traditional role, but, uh, still, you know, stay involved. But a traditional role on the police department where you were employed at? Correct. So what kind of stuff did you work on during that time? Did you maintain uh, your gang uh, focus and uh, motorcycle gang focus and keep working on that? Yeah, I, I've, I've done that throughout. Uh, I, I've always kind of, you know, sometimes uh, more officially than, than other times, you know, it just, you know, how things go. Uh, it, it's with anything in law enforcement. You know, we always call it the, uh, the flavor of the week. You know, what's, what's the hot button item? Is it terrorism this week? Is it you know, street gangs, is it, you know, stolen autos, you know, whatever the, the problem uh, area is, seems that's where the, uh, you know, resources get directed. But I've always, uh, you know, continued to do that. And that's a lot of the reason why I ultimately, you know, started my own, uh, you know, my own business where I was doing uh, training, consulting, things like that, because through that, uh, obviously, it, it, it allowed me to keep active, keep involved, uh, keep attending training as well as, you know, giving training and, you know, kind of network with, with other investigators. So from the time that you started task force, now you're back into your, uh, like say more of a traditional role. That's been about what now, um, it, it, two years on six and a half years on the task force. So you're about eight and a half, nine years in, right? Yeah, roughly. Yeah. During that time, what kind of things did you start to see changing with the motorcycle gangs? I mean, did things start changing over that period of time? Were they focusing now on different things? Uh, that, I mean, you're also getting close to 9-11. Things are going to change the focus, like you say, on terrorism and stuff like that. So what's starting to change in your world as it relates to motorcycles? You know, oddly enough, things didn't really change a lot until really, you know, over the last decade, I'd say is when things have kind of dramatically and, you know, it seems like year to year things just continue to, to evolve uh, into areas that you never thought that they would. And, you know, I, I'll just take an opportunity to, to touch on it because it's obviously the hot, you know, button 
topic right now. And of course, we all hear about it a thousand times more than we care to hear about it. But, you know, with COVID, while the entire world was shutting their doors, for lack of better terms, and, and, and just kind of, you know, staying in, these guys continued business as usual. Uh, they, if anything, they recruited more and they continued to expand, continued to grow. And from an opportunity standpoint, between the civil unrest across the country that we had with the Antifa and, you know, the rioting and all the, all the nonsense going on, that totally redirected police resources. Then you had everybody wanting to defund the police. So that caused additional issues. And then you had COVID. So it was like several gifts just thrown at these guys to where nobody's paying any attention to us at all. Uh, we can literally do whatever we want. And some of the things that they did to exploit that, uh, to take advantage of that, uh, use the Hells Angels, for example, they opened up in Bogota and Cali, Colombia of all places that you would never in a million years think that a motorcycle gang would be allowed to, you know, plant their flag, they're there. And they have a great relationship with the cartels. What about the uh, insurgent groups like FARC or M19 or AUC? Well, the thing that the Hells Angels like to say is the most important color is green. Money is green. Uh, so they'll deal with anybody. It doesn't really matter. Uh, they don't necessarily have to like your your geopolitical stance on things or, you know, what you might be involved in. If you have money and there's a way to exploit that, they'll deal with them. And that uh, includes dealing with the Crips, the Bloods, uh, whoever else. It doesn't matter. Uh, they can still, individual members can still hold their, uh, you know, white supremacy values or, or beliefs but you know again let's not kid ourselves the, the almighty dollar always wins out and I, I think that was one of the you know the things that i was a, a great movie american history x i'm sure you know most of your listeners have seen it but if they haven't i thought that was one of the most accurate on-spot parts of that movie when edward norton is in jail and he observes his other Aryan brothers doing drug business with the Mexican gang in prison. And he's like, what are you guys doing? Uh, you know, basically you're violating the code, you know, the oath. And these guys laughed at him because the light bulb came on for him. It's like, these guys don't believe in any of this shit. This doesn't mean anything to him. These guys are posers. They like to run around with swastikas on them and pretend like they're, you know, Nazi skinheads. But at the end of the day, if, the Mexican cartel or, or whoever Mexican gang that's in prison can provide them with drugs. They're going to buy it from them all day long and, and twice on Sunday. Well, yeah, you know, it's the, the mighty, you know, it's, it's all about the capitalism comrade. I'll tell you the one thing that they still might tick off, Steve, I still think the law is the same way down in Bogota in it, uh, in it that you have to have the uh, license plate number on the back of your helmet and you have to wear a vest with it on there. Um, that, that's got to piss those hell's angels off because you have to wear the vest down there with your license plate number on there and on the helmet because they don't like that. So we'll see how long it we'll see how long this uh, 
this new venture last down there, especially when they make them wear helmets and uh, do stuff like that. Hey, let's roll back a little bit, though, to uh, what was the next task force you were on? You're, you're doing traditional investigations for all, but you get an opportunity to move to another task force, right? Yeah, no, I was on DEA, uh, clandestine laboratory enforcement team, and I actually was uh, co-assigned out there during the, the six and a half years I was at the task force. So, um, you know, that was a, that was an interesting experience because at the time, uh, there was a small group of us that were clan lab certified that had been to Quantico, went through the two week school, uh, the clan lab safety and investigation school, and we were pretty much it. So we did all the tactical entries on suspected labs. We did all the lab processing, and we were doing that in a, in a two-state area. Uh, we were doing Missouri. We were doing Kansas, uh, and they pretty much kept us— Wait a minute. There's no, there's no drugs in Kansas. Please. We're just good, God-fearing, right-wing, raffle-carrying Christian farmers. That's a, that's a myth I want to just put, a, put an end to right here on this podcast. Well, there's not any more now. We got them. <laughs> <laughs> good answer. But let me, let me just confirm this with you, Steve. There is a lot of there are a lot of dopes in Kansas, right? There there are. That's it's <laughs> uh, guys. Yeah. This remember, I can edit all of this stuff out and make it sound good. For all you people from Kansas except Morgan, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, let's talk about West Virginia. Uh, but we'll do that okay. a little bit later. I can't make fun of you yet for a couple episodes till I'm sure Connie's <laughs> not listening. So but but Steve, let's go back to that for a minute too. Um let walk people through a clandestine lab because there were some unique things about when you took down a lab because it just wasn't walking in and saying, Hey, let's box this shit up and you know, take it out. It got so bad with the chemicals and some of the processes they were doing that the EPA created this thing called Superfund. So you had to have approval. You had to go in and do stuff. You had to, you know, it cost it cost quite a bit of money. So walk, give us an example about how you might get a lead on a clandestine lab, what it would do, and what it what was the process for clearing a site? Uh, because you were doing, what did you say? You did 300 in a year one time? Uh, over 300. Yeah. And really, uh, I hate to say this cause it, it takes away the, uh, the aura of it, the mystique, yeah. the mystique, but we really didn't have to do a whole lot of investigation because they were catching on fire and blowing up so often <laughs> that, you know, they were the easy to find. Was, the fire department finally came through and did something worthwhile for law enforcement. Well, and, and law enforcement, we call that a clue, right? <laughs> And, but a, a lot of times it was just the odor, you know, people would call and they'd say, hey, there's a horrible, you know, odor coming from my neighbor's house. I get a headache when I go outside and you're like, well, I got pretty good idea what that is. And you'd walk up in the front yard and you, the acetone smell. And so you'd go knock on the door, which, you know, nowadays they'd probably frown on, but we'd do a knock and talk. And next thing you know, you'd start hearing glass breaking and stuff in the house, which would create exigent circumstances and, you know, you do what you did and, and, uh, you know, shut it down. But so, yeah, it, it was, you know, I, I do remember one occasion, which was quite comical. We were running so hard that we just didn't have time to do anything. Uh, it was all reactive. So apparently an individual had called the police several times on their neighbor uh, saying, hey, there's a meth lab, there's a meth lab. And, of course, they never sent anybody because they didn't have anybody to send. We were just, it was just too busy. So, finally, the neighbor went out and spray-painted meth lab on the guy's garage. And the guy still kept doing it. Uh, but it ended up on Good Morning America 
uh, somebody took a picture and, and sent it in, and it ended up on there. But eventually, the house did catch fire, and we got to it. And uh, I, actually, I, I had the case, and you know, indicted the guy and put him in federal prison. So, uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was pretty comical. So, what's the process though for cleaning a place when you go in there? Um, kind of give everybody an idea of what it takes to clean a place once you, once you're in there. Well. Uh, you know, what are you supposed to do versus what you did half the time? Uh, well, you're supposed to, you know, maybe wear your SCBA or, or at bare minimum your APR, uh, go in there and, you know, do an air quality test and, and all that good stuff. Uh, we did that a lot of the times, but a lot of the times we didn't. You know, you would go in there, you know, ventilation's key, you'd open windows, maybe get a, a fan going, uh, try to get that happening. And, you just start processing the lab. And the big thing was, is you know, you, you kept the, you know, acids uh, in one area and, you know, you just tried to keep the chemicals separated. So uh, a lot of times we'd get paint buckets with vermiculite in them. Uh, you'd put liquids inside there, seal them up real good, make sure everything was, was separated out because uh, we did have an occasion where somebody mixed something and it, it blew up at the lab truck, and that was a, a bad thing. But uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Did they paint meth lab on the lab truck, too? Well, yeah. So <laughs> you just had to be careful. And, uh, of course, you know, pH and stuff, taking your representative samples of, you know, your two-stage liquids and things like that. So uh, th there was a lot of moving parts. But, again, there was a lot of, uh, myself included, but there was a lot of laziness. I mean, I had a group supervisor at DEA that would pick up a, a jar, and he'd hold it up, you know, about a foot away from his nose, and he'd wave his hand over the top of it uh, just to get a little odor off, and he'd go, oh, yeah, that's muriatic acid, or that's acetone, or that's, you know, and you're like, well, that's probably not good for you. But, oh, uh, you know. Yeah, muriatic acid, that's kind of some uh, heavy-duty shit, man. That eats through a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, we all do dumb things, and you know, a lot of times you look back and you're shocked that you survived, uh, so it's, you know, well, but you guys were operating at such a high tempo after a while. It's kind of like, I mean, if you did every, hate to say it this way, but if you did everything they told you to do, you'd never get anything done because you've got the next one rolling in and the next one rolling in. I mean, a lot of this too, right. Was you, you were just getting slammed. I mean, to do, to do 300 over 300 in a year, you know, by my math and Murph's math, there's only 365 days in a year. It's like, when's your time off? When's your downtime? When do you go home and see family? You know, when do you take a crap? Well, yeah, you know, you're exactly right. And for, you know, all intensive purposes, it's like being at war. I mean, uh, I don't want to, I'm not trying to underscore uh, by saying that uh, what people do overseas, but I'm just saying as far as the, a campaign, if you will, where you're, 24-7, around the clock, committed to uh, something, you're combating something, uh, it, it doesn't end. It doesn't stop. You know, you don't get to say, okay, well, we're just not going to do anything this weekend because they're not going to stop making dope. They're not going to stop committing violence uh, against one another. So you just kind of have to, you know, work through it and go. Was that one incident, is that the only time you ever had uh, an explosion at a lab? Um, yeah, I mean— as far as something that we screwed up and did, I think that was the only time. Uh, we, I, I've never been in one that, you know, blew up while we were inside of it or anything like that. 
probably done a lot of stupid things inside labs, uh, you know, just as far as a lot of it just being tired and not paying attention and, you know, could have had some potential issues by, you know, not watching where you were at, uh, you know, taking samples over things that you shouldn't, that if you'd have dripped on it, you could have probably had some problems, but, you know, by and large, no. And the thing of it is, I spent a lot of time, and of course, you know, I went to Klan Lab School. They taught us how to to make meth. I knew how to do it. I spent a lot of times, you know, finishing people's cooks. You know, you'd have a, a cook in a certain, you know, stage of operation when the lab got busted. Well, you know, you need to pull that that product. I remember one time it was on Valentine's Day. I was in a storage locker where the guy was cook. His girlfriend would drop him off at a storage locker. He'd do the meth cook there, and she'd come pick him up the next day. So it was Valentine's Day. I sat out there. It was colder than hell. And um, I had to finish, you know, the process where he was why'd at. You have to, why'd you have to finish the process? Just simply to stabilize it so it wasn't dangerous? Or were you guys selling stuff on the side? <laughs> <laughs> he, he was at a, a phase where he was pulling the dope uh, from the liquid. And it was just, it was going to be a, a mess so I already had the pillowcases and everything out there, and we were just basically straining the dope through the pillowcases uh, so we could package it and everything. So it was basically just at that stage where it was ready to be done and, and dried. So, you know, it's just like, well, we're going to have to sample this and do it anyway. Might as well just finish it. Do you still have to go have medical checkups every so often? You know, I, I don't. I probably should. I, I haven't. Um uh, I was going to tell you about that one thing growing out of your left eyebrow there, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, pr I probably should, but I haven't. You're on, you're on mute, Murph. <laughs> Sorry, it makes you forget whether you're on mute or not. <laughs> I was saying it makes your beard turn white. Yeah, well, that... <laughs> it does that too. So do kids and uh, wives, but uh, we won't, uh, we won't go too far there. Hey, but Steve, how, what, what's the average cost to clean up a lab back in the day when you were there? I mean, cause you had to bring, you had a specialized company that had to come in and do it. Um, what, what kind of cost are you looking at for one of those things? I remember we used a company out of Chicago. Uh, I think it was advanced scientific and chemical. And if memory serves me right, it was like $6,000 just for them to turn the ignition on the truck to start heading our way. And it got so bad that they got so tired of coming out here that they just left people out here because they're like, well, they're just going to call again and again and again. So it just got to be ridiculous. So they just, you know, kept people out there. Yeah. And that was a thing too. Uh, like I said, you know, the EPA gets involved with this. You got to get authorization, clean these sites up. How long did you do the clan lab stuff? Cause that's got to wear on you. I mean, it, that's a, that's such a high op tempo. You, you I mean, you burn the candle at both ends. You burn out twice as fast. How long did you last? I, I did it the whole six and a half years I was out there. I, I worked labs. So, and I did undercover at the same time too. So sometimes I did undercover while I was cleaning up a lab. That's a, a fun story too. <laughs> Oh, yeah, because you could legitimately tell your guy, hey, man, I'm just finishing up a cook right now. I'm, I'm straining it. Here's what I'm doing, because you really were doing that. So, well, give us an example of a UC case. You know, you're working a UC case while you're fish finishing up a guy's cook. I'm at a house. I'm cleaning the lab up, and these two mutts come and knock on the front door. So I answer the door, and they're like, hey, is Bruce here? And I said, no, you know, piss off. We're busy. And they're like, are you guys cooking? 
And I'm like, who are you? Like, you know, what, what, what do you need to know? And they're like, well, we, we just want to get something. I go, yeah, and we're not close to done. So as I'm talking to them, I can smell them, and they reek of marijuana. And I said, you guys got any bud? And he's like, yeah, I've got a bunch. And then the other idiot pops up and goes, and I've got shrooms. And I said, <laughs> well, get them, and let's, you know, while we're waiting, let's do something. They're like, all right. So they walk back to the car and get their stuff. Well, I forget that there's a detective, plainclothes detective, with his gun and badge on his belt, standing in the living room of the house. And I walk <laughs> these guys up the stairs right past him. They look right at him. And I said, hey, say hi to my Uncle Dave. And they're like, hey, Uncle Dave. And they don't even register. And they walk on down the hallway to the bedroom they both sell me dope, and then I said, hey, Dave, come back here. He comes back here, and I'm like, hey, dum-dums, uh, we're the police. And they're like, what? And I said, yeah, and we arrest him. You can't do that. That's entrapment. Yeah, I like that. It's like having you know? Cheech and Chong there. But, you know, they, they, there's a reason they call it dope. And, I mean, I, I'll tell you another quick story. We're, we raided a house one time. I was on the front porch of the house wearing a raid jacket that said police on it. I think it was a DDA raid jacket, as a matter of fact. And some guy pulls up in his car. I was out front, uh, I think, smoking a cigarette or something, which I don't usually do unless somebody else has one. I'm one of those smokers. If you got a cigarette, I'll smoke one, but I don't want to spend my money on it. And he comes walking up, and he's like, hey, so-and-so here. And I'm like, well, what do you need? And he's like, I need to get a sack. And I go, you got money? Yeah. So he gives me 150 bucks and I'm like, all right. And then I arrest him. He's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, what do you mean? What am I doing? What are you doing? I'm in a raid jacket. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, you, you see my coat. And he's like, oh, and I'm like, yeah, oh, this is, you know, I mean, you're not, you're, you're not good at this, bro. You got to find something else. Shit up, right? Yeah. You got to find something else. Oh my gosh, so much I fun. I thought you were the Department of Energy. I saw the DEA. Department I don't know what the A stands for. Yeah, or the drug enforcement. <laughs> we're here to weigh your dope. Make sure you're in compliance with the new tax stamp law. Might there have done a scam like that one time. Uh, so, Steve, but six and a half years, you said your time is running out. You go back to the uh, department. During this time, um, have things changed much in the motorcycle gang in terms of, you know, the gangs in terms of the things they're focusing on, or is it pretty static? And then let's start walking through because where we're taking folks, where we're taking everybody is Steve has just got a wealth of knowledge on the, where the motorcycle gangs were and where they are today. So we, what we kind of do is kind of walk you through the metamorphosis of these gangs, how they changed and why they changed. When do you start seeing a change in how the gangs start doing business? I, I think the, really accurately answer that you kind of have to start at the beginning unfortunately and you know a lot of people probably we're not going back to diapers are we not to diapers but I, I think a lot of people don't really understand and I, I fight this fight to this day not only with the general public but uh, w with a lot of cops you know you'll you'll mention motorcycle gangs you'll mention the hell's angels and they'll go are are those guys still around and I'll, like what do you, are they still around? They're, they're bigger and more powerful than they've ever been in history. Yeah, I'd say they're still around. Uh, but I think there's just this misconception that 
these guys are, oh, yeah, they were a thing back in the 60s, but, you know, these guys aren't really doing anything now or they're not really around now. And that's that's crazy. Uh, but to go back to my, my original point is you have to look back to the origin. And when these groups started out versus what they've become, it's, it's a totally different deal. Uh, 7447, you know, you've got the American Motorcycle Association holding a gypsy tour in Hollister, California. And basically what happens is you've got all these returning World War II vets that were missing the excitement, the brotherhood, the, the camaraderie uh, from being in combat. And they come back, they start riding motorcycles, and some of them start some motorcycle clubs. You know, you've got these groups, uh, you know, the Road Rats and, and you know, early Hollister, uh, you know, Market Street Commandos, Pobobs, these early Hollister-era uh, bike clubs. And that's what they were at the time. They were clubs. And it was a bunch of guys that, you know, hey, you were in the service, I was in the service, you know, you've got a bike, I've got a bike. We're going to go out, we're going to drink beer, we're going to ride, ride our motorcycles, we're going to chase pussy, we're going to, you know, get in fights, and we're going to blow off steam and have a good time. And, and that's essentially what these groups were established for. That's what they were set up for. So you've got this Hollister, you know, rally, this, this event, and you have a member of, of the Pobob that gets arrested for, you know, what you would probably equate nowadays to being drunk and disorderly. You got a, a, a about a seven man police element operating there. Uh, they they pick the guy up. You have a kind of a riot kickoff, if you will. And, and let's keep it into context. By 1940s standards, maybe a riot. By Ferguson or Minneapolis standards, probably not a riot. But what ends up happening is, is you've you know get a lot of California uh, Highway Patrol called in. You get more bikers arrested. And you get the whole thing kind of quelled. But when it's all said and done, uh, the AMA, at least somebody from the AMA, says, hey, 99% of the bikers in attendance were law-abiding citizens. 1% were outlaws. 1% caused all the problems. And from that, you have these groups, uh, specifically the Hells Angels, that take that as a, a badge of honor. You know, that they... Uh, evolve shortly after Hollister, and actually uh, one of the members of the Pobob is one of the, the founding members of the Angels. So <clears throat> they evolve, they start wearing that 1% you know, patch to protest the AMA, and then what you see happen over the course of time is these guys start escalating in their, their behavior, they, they become heavy uh, consumers of, of drugs, especially uh, in the, the Haight-Ashbury area, the, the psychedelics and, and things like that. And then some of the members, you know, discover that there's a market selling drugs to hippies. Uh, you know, there's, there's money to be made. Ultimately, what you have is you have other groups start to establish. And when that happens, especially groups like the Mongols, uh, that's where you start drawing your your contrast, where these groups start becoming territorial with one another. Of, hey, Steve. Yeah. L l before we get too far down, let me roll back because this is interesting. This is I did not know this. Uh, this so when you mentioned the one percent, that's where the that's where the original concept of one percenter came from. Absolutely. 
Wow. So it has, because that's, that has definitely morphed over time, right? In terms of what the 1% means versus what it originally meant when it first started. Yeah. Again, I I think initially it was, they were trying to, you know, diss the AMA, you know, uh, throw shade at them for, oh yeah, you you think we're the bad guys. Okay. Well, let's advertise that we're the bad guys. You know, that's, that's who you think we are. And you might've said that to insult us, but we actually like it. You know, we like to be considered that because we don't want to be like you guys. You guys aren't any fun. You know, you guys are running these mom and pop family uh, structured events and we want to raise hell and party. We want to have a good time. So yeah, I I think, uh, you know, uh, that's, that's where it started. That's certainly not where it ended. So, I mean, because this is interesting, too, because I, I think a lot of people just assume motorcycle gangs started. Well, it started with Hells Angels, and they were criminals from the start. And it's like, no, you go back, take a look at the history. And I'm glad you took us back, because where it started from and where it is now, like you say, just complete worlds apart. So uh, continue on, Professor. Class is in session. Oh, this is good, too. So, well, you know, what you start seeing is, uh, like, I'll just use, you know, the Angels are a very good business model to operate off of. Uh, nobody's done this better than them. Uh, they have, to their credit, they have done a very good job at, at marketing, self-promotion, and, uh, you know, setting themselves up uh, successfully to where they can operate and function at a high level. But when they started out, uh, they did not really accept uh, Hispanics into the gang. That was just, you know, kind of not the thing. They, they do now. It's, it's not an issue whatsoever. But initially when it started out, uh, so you, you've got the Mongols. They come on the scene. Well, they, they were, you know, predominantly Hispanic. Not, not completely, but predominantly. Uh, you have this, you know, rocker war, for lack of better terms, kickoff. You know, the Hells Angels were a California bottom rocker. Mongols were a SoCal bottom rocker, uh, which eventually becomes a California bottom rocker. So they're competing over territory, you know, who who gets to uh, claim the state. And what happens is, you know, ultimately these guys go to war against each other. It's it's been going on uh, since, you know, gosh, at least the 70s. Uh, they, They went to war with each other. And what happens is, is wars are expensive. You have to be able to fund a war. Well, what better way to fund it than through proceeds of crime, selling drugs? Can you go back and explain what you're talking about when you say bottom rocker? So uh, typical outlaw motorcycle gang will have a three-piece patch. Uh, a top rocker is going to have your gang name. It'll say Hell's Angels. Your center patch will be their logo. So with, you know, like the angels, it's the death head. And then the bottom rocker is going to be either a city, county, state, country, whatever area they're claiming is their their turf, their territory. So, you know, with the Angels, when they started, you know, they, they were California on that bottom rocker. And that was to tell everybody else that, you know, we are the the dominant group in the state. You know, we, we are the dominant motorcycle MC uh, club in the state. So uh, that that's, you know, again, that's what creates the majority of the conflicts between these groups is it's, it's turf and territory uh, issues. That, that's kind of ridiculous. Well, you know, but you, you bring up, but you know, Murph kind of that point though, is like, it, it, we think about things today and go, well, that's just, you know, why are these guys arguing over that? But that for them, that starts becoming a source of pride that becomes an issue of territory. And the thing that's interesting too, with this, 
there's some corollaries to you know to modern day do when people talk about a lot of the, who may be involved in some of these groups now and they're looking at the military and people like that still the camaraderie thing but this the majority of these people when they started these are all world war II veterans you know people who have the skills and the capability to fight these aren't just some sunday you know school preachers these are guys that were in combat killed people and know how to use weapons and defend themselves absolutely absolutely well, now that I've made that brilliant statement, what's next, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> so when, when you talk about the evolution, you know, again, uh, the Hells Angels, you know, they, were, they weren't the first, but they were the first to, I, I guess I would credit with, like I had mentioned earlier, having this, you know, business model, I think is the best way that you can, you can put it uh, as far as, you know, they're incorporated and, you know, the, the trademarks and, and things like that. They, they really structured it. They, they had good attorneys and they, they set their organization up in a way to try to insulate themselves, especially from things like uh, racketeering laws. You know, they know that the government is, is hot to trot with their, uh, you know, racketeer influence, corrupt organization statute. So although we know that this isn't true, the one thing the angels have done is they've given the illusion that every chapter operates, uh, you know, on its own, uh, autonomous, I guess, to everybody else. You know, just because Cleveland does business this way doesn't mean, uh, San Jose does business this way. So they tried it to do that purposely. What Another thing that they were bright about, they don't have an international president. They don't have that one head of the snake that you could look at and say, okay, this person's responsible for all the criminal activity that this organization is involved in. We're going to indict them. You know, we're going to cut the head off the snake. They're not structured that way. So uh, where a lot of other groups have made that mistake and continue to make that mistake, the angels are very bright about that because there's not one. Now, you may be able to, to target them at a local level, at a charter-by-charter charter level, and go after the chapter president and the, the hierarchy in that regard, but you're never going to get to the international hierarchy because they're smarter than that. Do they, have, do they have that international, I mean, unofficially? Who, I mean, how do they set the rules for all chapters to follow? So what they do is, like in, in the United States, for example, uh, the Angels are set up East Coast and West Coast. So uh, the East Coast is Omaha, Nebraska, East. Uh, West Coast is Denver, Colorado, to the West. So what they'll do is they will have East Coast officer meetings and West Coast officer meetings. They have a chair that oversees, like an East Coast chair and a West Coast chair that kind of oversees those meetings. But each charter is supposed to send two officers to the meeting. So whether it's a president, vice president, or a sergeant at arms and a, a, a treasurer, you know, they'll have these two uh, people there. <clears throat> but what the angels do is they operate kind of off a one-man, one-vote structure. So everybody in the club is supposed to have a vote. Uh, as far as how things go. So they're fairly democratic in that regard, but they also, again, I think that keeps them from having to have that one decision maker, that one person that says, we're going to do things this way. And they do the same at the world level. They have 
you know, a world run, they'll have a world meeting at that run. When they have a USA run, which they have every year, they have a USA meeting and they have the different representatives from the different charters show up uh, to it so they can discuss and vote on issues and include that in their uh, bylaws. So is, this is just a way from them to avoid potential RICO charges, right? Oh, absolutely. The, yeah. Yeah. They, they don't want to they don't want to show any kind of a formal structure. And if you look at a lot of these other groups uh, and how they do business, uh, you look at the banditos, they've had at least three of their El Presidentes indicted uh, by the federal government. The outlaws have had probably four or five of their international presidents indicted. The Mongols have had, you know, one or two indicted. So, you know, you look at the groups that do that, it's really a pretty easy target because if I'm the person overseeing an entire organization in 13 different states and they're carrying on an active war with a, a rival gang, how am I going to sit back and say, well, I didn't know what these guys were doing. You're in charge. If you, if you don't, you're, you know, here's the thing. From a federal prosecution standpoint, and especially from a, a, a United States district judge's standpoint, they're going to say, you're either lying or you're incompetent. You, you pick, but either way, you're still guilty because you allowed this to happen. You didn't do anything to stop it. Well, and, you know, the fact that you're talking about them going international, you know, that's not just a, a, a member of the Hells Angels decides, hey, I'm going to go open a, a chapter in Brussels or Bogota, like you said, you know, it's, it has to come from somewhere, the leadership from somewhere. Yeah, it's got to be voted on. Everybody's got to vote on it and agree that that's a, a move that they want to make because a lot of times there's collateral damage that comes with it. A lot of times they say, yeah, we're going to move into this area, but we recognize that we're probably going to have to fight X, Y, or Z to do it. Is that something that we're willing to do because that does it, it affects us financially as an organization, but it also, you know, it's going to take lives, potentially. Hey, players, that was the end of part one. Steve Cook and the world of outlaw motorcycle gangs. Thursday, part two will be coming out, so stay tuned for that. A lot of good stuff will be in that episode as well. In the meantime, go over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. Check out our website. Remember, we've got our new book list we've added there. Any guest who has written a book, we're going to highlight it on that. We've also got our merch, uh, anything that's happening, pictures. you got to check out the pictures, especially on Steve's episode. You're going to see some of the real pictures, real outlaw motorcycle gangs. Also, follow us on the socials, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, and the Instagram. But more importantly, go check us out at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a ton of great content there waiting for you. So tell one, share one, give everybody the gift of Game of Crimes. It's never too early to shop for Christmas. Remember, only 325 shopping days until next Christmas. We got to get on it. So everybody, stay tuned. Part two, Steve Cook and the World of Outlaw Motorcycle Gangs coming up Thursday. 